Doherty, the 6'7 sophomore from East Meadow, New York. Leadership is learned. A starter on Coach Dean Smith's legendary 1982 Tar Heels National Championship team with Michael Jordan. Jordan comes down with a rebound. Clears it away to Doherty. Doherty going in against Floyd. For the layup, it's good. Leadership is earned. Head coach at the University of North Carolina and the University of Notre Dame. You notice Matt Doherty. He is up working every second of this ballgame. Leadership is taught. Public speaker, author, and executive coach. And leadership does not require a title. This is the Rebound Podcast with Coach Matt Doherty. Welcome to the Rebound Podcast. I'm Matt Doherty and I'll be your host. On this podcast, we focus on the topic of leadership and overcoming adversity in an open and raw kind of way. We discuss failures and how to rebound from them. I became passionate about leadership after being forced to resign from my coaching job at the University of North Carolina in 2003. I went on a leadership journey and realized it may be the most undertaught topic in formal schooling, yet may be the most important. With me today is Michael Center. I've known Michael for 30 years. He coached and played tennis at the University of Kansas before going on to a successful stint at TCU and then the University of Texas. He had massive success at every stop as a coach and player. He was a three-time Big 12 Coach of the Year. Michael is a husband and father. Michael, welcome to the Rebound Podcast. Thanks, Matt. I appreciate you having me. Yeah. Um, Michael, I'm just going to get to it. You're, hmm. you're one of the most respected tennis coaches, and as the head coach of University of Texas, one of the biggest brands in the country, you're getting ready to leave for work one day, and the front door gets busted down. What happened? Well, Matt, uh, that was about two years ago, March the 12th, 2019. Today is the first day I've even publicly spoken at all about this topic. You're the first person I've even addressed this with. But um, we had a match that evening versus Rice. I heard a knock on my door, not a knock, a, a crash, crashing noise against my door. I thought someone had been seriously injured the way they were screaming and yelling. Um, it was about eight o'clock in the morning and I rushed to my door hearing my name screamed and I opened the door uh, feeling like it was going to be knocked down. And within seconds, I was shackled at my ankles and handcuffed in front of my family and taken to jail. And um, they wouldn't tell me what was going on. I, I think I'd had one speeding ticket in my life. Um, I'd never had any NCAA rules violations. And I didn't know what was happening. And uh, I was put in a cell that day for about six hours, not knowing anything and, uh, really has, uh, changed my life. I went from being the coach of a team that was ranked number two in the country. And we, that team ended up winning the national championship that year. Um, we had just opened a new facility about a year and a half earlier. And, um, I was, I was on top of the world in a lot of ways, uh, had a great team, Great family, great life, and um, and everything changed. As and you, M Michael, as you were being 
arrested, did you have any inkling it was it was involving the academic bribery scandal? No, I had no idea. I had no idea at the time. Um, when I exited, when I had to go in front of a judge that day and they released me on, on bail, there were probably 30, 25, 30, maybe up to 40 people clamoring uh, in front of this window, taking my picture like paparazzi and um, screaming my name. And I, at that point, realized something was going on that was much bigger than I could have ever imagined. But at that point, uh, when this initially happened, I had no idea. Even, uh, when, even when you were being released on bail, you had no idea? Oh, once, once I got, re- yeah, once I was released, I had an attorney show up and tell me what was going on. Okay. So I did know once I walked out that, that, what the situation was, but I had no idea the magnitude of it. I had no idea that it was a national story. Uh, I didn't know any of these other people. I didn't know anything about it. Um, Well, let's just give the audience uh, uh, an overview of what we're referring to. Okay. okay. This is the NCAA academic admissions bribery scandal uh, that started, as you said, in, in 2019, that was at the direction of a Rick Singer and a Martin Fox. Uh, they would um, entice uh, coaches, basically of non-revenue sports, to admit student students as athletes um, so they could use a partial scholarship or just gain admission to a university in return for some kind of funds. Uh, is that fair to say, Michael? Yeah, I think that, I think that's fair to say, um, you know, I'm not going to go into all the details about it. Um, you know, essentially what happened with me, uh, in an overview. And, and I think this is well known, uh, in 2012, um, the University of Texas, uh, a bond was put forth to, to, to build a medical school on the campus. We didn't have our own branch of a medical school and, and a bond passed, Michael Dell gave money and all of a sudden everyone's happy. We're going to build a medical school. And then about two months later, I'm told, oh, by the way, it's going to be your tennis courts will be torn down. Uh, and you will have to have a, a new facility built. So I was told we had a $15 million budget uh, to replace the tennis center coming from the school. We decided on the spot, the location, plans were drawn up. Um, the gentleman who hired me was kind of a legendary figure, a guy named DeLos Dodds, was the athletic director. He departs. Uh, in 2013, and Mac Brown, who's now the coach at North Carolina, is asked to leave, and all of a sudden, there are a lot of changes. A new athletic director comes in, and he calls a meeting with about 35 to 40 people and says, you no longer have $15 million. When you come up with $10 million, we'll put a shovel in the ground. Uh, The woman who was supervising me, says the same thing. I did never had a private meeting. I never was, was given this information uh, between 
myself and the administration. And so I set out on a journey to raise $10 million along with the foundation and it, it was not going well. And I got a call one day and, uh, we got involved in this thing. I thought that I was transparent with it. Um, well, how so? How, how when you say you were transparent with it, transparent to whom? With the administration. And, and, young, and how so? How, how explain? Well, the, the difference between the difference between my situation and a lot of situations is when you when you bring in student athletes as a walk on at a lot of schools, they are coded and they move through the system. Uh, designated as an athlete, but that didn't work that way at the University of Texas. You had to sign what was called a national letter of intent. And so whether it was Michael Jordan or Matt Doherty or Kevin Durant or a book scholarship, you were vetted through the same process on a national letter of intent. And so this young man came through on it as a, on a national letter of intent and, um, I felt like everyone was very aware um, and documented that he would not play tennis. Um, so he was going, you were using a slot for him, an yeah, academic was, slot, so he could well, get it. It wasn't even really an academic slot. It was, a, it was, I was foregoing a spot on my team, a recruitable spot, a book scholarship. Uh, a, full, because, a full scholarship. No, a book scholarship. A book, a book scholarship, is, gotcha. Which is just 2% of it. We, we, we operate on equivalency. Yep. See, we only have four and a half scholarships. Right, yep. And so we operate, and he signed as a book. So everybody, uh, you know, that was, that was public knowledge. And, and there's a process that you have to go through where you're vetted, where you're signed off on by numerous people in the department, all the way up to the athletic director. And, and um so he signed. He signed as a book scholarship tennis player, even Correct. though everyone knows he's not a tennis player. Correct. And, and the reason the ba- to become the basketball manager to become the basketball manager. Now, the basketball program had asked me through this guy to help them, and they they spoke to me often about it. And um, why couldn't the basketball program just? Well, they they only offer you know basketball is a headcount sport. They only offer full scholarships. Yeah. you're not going to give someone like this a full scholarship. So was the, the was the hook to get this kid into school? Was he not a good enough student to get in academically? Yeah, all these kids that yeah. ended up going to these schools were not qualified. You know, they yeah. were decent students, but you know, to be admitted right. through a university like Texas or North right. Carolina or Stanford or it's difficult. It's right. and it's becoming more and more difficult. Yes, and. That's part of the problem is, you know, parents, uh, we could go on and on about this, but you send your kids to schools, you get the tutors, you do all the things, and, and then you, you've given money to the school, and they say, no, you, you can't be admitted. Uh, right. You know, and it's caused uh, issues throughout the country, and, and I think we all know that people have been admitted in various ways through the years. Um, Easier private schools than public schools. Yeah, because easier at private school than a public yeah, school. Yeah. And, and, but it's happened across the country in, in various sports or yep. through, through favors or whatever. And so I, I, I didn't feel like 
I was doing anything wrong. Because you because it was going through a system where everybody had a sign off on it from right. you know, the basketball coaches to the athletic administration and there's a paper trail. There's a paper right. trail. So and what so went wrong? What 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 did I accepted money at okay. the end. At oh. the very end I made a terrible choice. There were some things that were said to me that were I can't go into detail, but they were beyond inappropriate. Um, In terms of a threatening manner? Threatening, threatening manner. And by I the felt per- like, by the why, person, am, I, by the why person, am I being asked by- to raise this much money to be able to do my job? Okay, so, so, the, so the threatens, threats came from the administration. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So you felt the pressure that you had to succeed and you needed to raise money. I needed to raise money and I felt, you know, this, anybody who's ever coached knows this. You're told you're a part of a family, but <laughs> at the end of the day, you need to win. Yeah. I, I think, I, like, I think I've been there, Michael. You, I you think know I've that been there. as well as anybody, yeah, Matt. Yeah. And, and at the end of the day, obviously football and basketball are more high profile, but at a school like Texas, I felt like I could not win and be successful and do my job without tennis courts. Yeah, that would help, right? Yeah, I mean, that helps. You know, and you kind of need tennis courts and maybe some rackets and a few balls. You need some balls. And, and not <laughs> just, you know, not just in a field. I mean, we were literally playing in a field where – the courts had been built in 1970 with with fences that couldn't support a windscreen where we went had a little portable uh, trailer where we had a little porta potty in there and we would drive 15 minutes 20 minutes over there and then in the mornings we would go to a public facility to 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 do our private lessons and we would go all over town to play matches wherever we could find courts and i felt like i was going to fail i felt like I could not, I couldn't do my job. I couldn't succeed. And I was, I became very anxious. I, I'm going to be honest. I became very nervous and very anxious that we were not going to be able to keep up. And at the time, the Big 12 was incredibly strong in tennis. In 2015, three of the four final four teams came out of our conference. Wow. Uh, Baylor, TCU, in Oklahoma, and we weren't one of them. And for for me to keep up with that, it wasn't like we were playing against you know these uh, in a really weak. We we were expected to be at minimum in the top ten. Right. So so let me go back to this this young man that you give a scholarship to. So now it's even hurts you down now a, a, a part part of a scholarship you can't give to an actual player. Right. But now his father is going to donate money to the tennis facility. Was that the understanding? Well, he there, there was some money given to me that I gave to to, in, to benefit the tennis center. I made the mistake of accepting some money, and then I passed on the father's name to the foundation, and the father became one of our largest donors to the tennis facility through the foundation. I just gave him the father's name and number. I wasn't trying to hide anything. Right. Um, you know, I was, and then, then he had to go meet with the compliance director, the young man, and 
He became an employee of the athletic department. He was working on the basketball staff. I mean, I, I, when they tried to approach me again with this, I, I said, no, I don't need to get involved with this. The athletic director was soon fired and, and a new administration came in and said, we're building you tennis courts. So I, I didn't have the, the threat or the pressure of raising money anymore. And I just had moved on. And now I had a place to recruit to and rebuild the team. And, and we went from, you know, a top 25 team to a national championship team. And in large part, because we had a place to play. Yeah, it, it blows. It, it would blow anybody that knows of, of college athletics knows that Texas and Ohio State probably have the two largest budgets and brands in the country. And it's it's hard to believe that you had to practice in a field in outdated courts and, and you had to raise $10 million for a, you know, for courts for your team that 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 was probably not something you ever expected you had to do at the university of texas no i never anticipated part of the deal going there was you know when i was at kansas when we were together at kansas that was part of the deal i raised money to, to right. operate the, the program um uh, but when i went to texas i was told you don't have to raise money uh, we we you you know you have a budget you have to stay within your budget but that's not part of the deal and and I, you know, I had helped, we'd built an indoor facility. Part of the problem is in 2013, we opened up a, an $8 million indoor facility. Mm-hmm. So a lot of our donors and I had been involved in, in that a little bit, but they had given. And so when the university tore down the outdoor facility, people were tired of giving and they didn't think that was their responsibility to give anymore. That was the school's responsibility right. to rebuild the courts. And and the foundation was trying, but they were striking out, and I was the one that uh, it fell on. It's either you it do it, or you, you do I it, or you're going to get fired. One that knew the people. Yeah, yeah I had the relationships with the tennis people. Yeah, uh, you know, I'd been there a long time, and and um, and so the the people that were interested in tennis knew me. So so uh, let's go back now. This scandal. Uh, involves some heavy names. I mean, Rick Singer and Martin Fox are at the probably top of the pyramid, but some of the uh, people that are involved, uh, Lori Laughlin and Felicity uh, Huffman, two actresses in Hollywood um, that had to spend time in jail. And uh, this this took over national news for for months. Um, You know, you're at the top of the tennis world. You're getting back. You have your family. All of a sudden, you're in shackles. You're you're out on bail. What do you tell your wife and kids? Well, when I got home that night, I think we were all in shock. Um, beyond shock. And we got together, and I told my family, I said, your lives will not change because of this. I promise you, I promise you, I I made a commitment that I would do anything and everything in my power as a human being to let my children and my wife continue to live the same lives. Um, You know, you're going to go to school. My boys are, one's going to college next year. The next one will go the following year. You continue to go to high school. You continue to do your thing. 
play your sports, do well in school. You're going to go to college. You're going to have a great life. My wife has a, has a job that she loves and you keep doing your job and we will work through this. Um, I was devastated, but I tried to keep the, the mindset that we would be okay. Um, but deep down, I was trembling and frightened in a way that I'd never been frightened. I, I couldn't even breathe at times. What was the, like, okay, that's, that was the night of March 12th, 2019. Right. When, what's next for Michael Center? Do you get fired, forced to resign? Um, do you, do you go to court? Do you go to, when did you go to, you know, jail? Yeah. Well, what was the, the timeline? Next, the next day it was spring break and we had a scheduled trip. My family was going skiing and we had a match on Thursday against Ohio state. They were ranked number one and we were two or three. They were the only team that beaten us. We had a match that night we were going to play. And then I was going to go out and join them for a couple of days. Um, instead, I put them on a plane on the next day and I'm fired the next day in about 30 seconds. So I've been there 19 years and in 30 seconds it was over. I get a phone call from the two administrators um, and they tell me you're done and I have nothing. And so I put my family on a plane on Wednesday and Thursday, this attorney that had uh, come to meet me, who I didn't know, lives in Houston. I drive to Houston. I, I hire him that day. I go home and the team, you know, we have this Longhorn Network. We play Ohio State and we just crushed Ohio State. So now we're going to be number one or two in the country. And, and, um, the next day, my brother calls me and tells me they were talking about me on the Today Show. Oh, God. And I didn't even know about it. And so I had to call and I had to change attorneys that day. He'd gone on without my permission, without me knowing. Oh, the, even the attorney went on the Today Show and started yeah. talking. So he probably yeah. just wanted it for, for, for publicity. He wanted some publicity. He, I didn't even really know him. He didn't know much about me. He spoke about my case. He said things that I didn't... Uh, I, I've never watched the video, but my brother told me it was inappropriate. It was just not good. And so I, I'm, I was literally on my floor on that Friday morning after my brother told me this and I couldn't breathe. I, I, no one was home. I was laying there and I had a panic attack and I thought, I thought I was going to have a heart attack. I could not breathe. I couldn't move. I was I was crying and panting and I didn't know what to do. I, now I didn't have an attorney. I knew I was going to have to change attorneys. I didn't know where to go. I didn't know what to do. I'd lost my job. Um, I, I was in a full, full out panic. And at that point I was, I was suicidal. I wanted to kill myself. Um, I, I knew that I didn't have, I didn't have it in me to do it. 
But if a bus had run was coming at me, I wasn't going to get out of the way. I wanted to just die. And um, I ended up going to a, a psychiatrist. Started getting on a medication. So in three days, I go from being the head coach of one of the best teams in the country at one of the biggest schools in the country to wanting to kill myself over making an error that I regret. But I, I never was trying to even take someone's spot that was applying to school and never entered my mind. I would never have done that. I was giving up a spot on my own team. Right. And, and then the NCA did a full investigation and ruled it wasn't even a violation. Why wasn't it a violation? Because we followed protocol. Right. I told them what was going on. So the NCAA says it's, you didn't file, you didn't, didn't violate any rules. I didn't even violate a rule. So how could the school fire you? Could you go back to the well, Because I was arrested, I guess. And I accepted money at the end and they said it was a bribe. And I, I just, I, I, um, so I, I, I'm stuck. I'm fired. I'm, uh, I'm how out much, of a job. How much money, how much money did you accept? $60,000, which I gave probably Forty-five to fifty thousand dollars of it away. To whom? Mainly to homeless people mm -hmm. and to charities. I didn't really. It was not a, for me, and I, I kept some, and that was wrong. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt. I, I paid tax on the whole thing, and I paid a penalty on it, and I did that on my own. No one asked me to do that, but at, later on, but that was still wrong of me to take it. I regret it. I got anxious. I got angry that they were asking me to come up with this kind of money. And this guy said, you deserve some. And I said, yeah, you're right. I'm tired of these things happening. And, and I, I would give, I'd walk up to for four years. I had it for four years and I would give it to, we have a pretty big homeless population in Austin. And mm -hmm. I would just walk up and give someone $500 and give someone, and I did it all the time. And, and it was wrong. It's still wrong. And, and I take full responsibility for that. That is on me. There's no reason that I should have allowed anyone to make me feel that angry or that I lost my poise or as a leader of people that I buckled and I made a poor decision. But I did. And the first thing I told myself when I was sitting in prison that day is you told your team for your entire life. If you do something wrong, you own it, you tell the truth, and it will work out. You know, you and I have talked a lot over the last uh, couple of months. You know, you, what you preach to your team, what you preach to your own children, now you're on the hot seat, all right? You're being asked by the law, did you do it? And, and, you say you owned up to it. Well, I, you know, when you coach, you know, this Matt, you, you know, kids 18 to 22 will make mistakes, some more serious than others. And I would always bring the guys in and I'd say, just tell me the truth. 
um, and we'll work through this. If, and if you if you don't tell me the truth, it will not end well. So it's your choice. We all have choices in life. And I said, you know what? I told my team my whole life to tell the truth. I better tell the truth and everything and own it. And that's what I did. And so the day they, they got me, I said, whatever this is, I'm telling the truth. And um, I told the truth. Didn't work out very well for me, but I, I told the truth because that's what I told my, myself. And many times to this whole situation, I would refer to what would I tell the team? What would I tell one of my players? It's pretty powerful. What would I expect of them? And I have to expect that of myself. Pretty powerful. Pretty powerful. If you had to do it again, would you tell the truth? Now that I know the system, I don't know how much it benefits you. I can tell you that. I, I still I still wouldn't want to lie because I don't think that's the way to handle things in life. But I think there's a reason you see all these people in life and society and politicians just deny everything. What tell, telling, tell, the, tr- tell telling me, the truth didn't help me at all. T- tell me, tell me when you say the system, uh, talk about that a little bit further. Well, I, I, I had, I knew nothing about the criminal justice system. Absolutely nothing. I mean, my knowledge of it was you'd see someone had gotten in trouble and they went to jail and you, my thought process, well, they must've done something wrong and, they shut the door and you didn't really know what was going on behind the scenes and you just accepted it. And I think that's what most people do in, in this society that have never been around that, that uh, criminal justice system. But what I, what I came to find out was the, the challenge of finding out you know, everything. And if you deny it and you make it hard to prove certain things, people get away with things and they move on. And, I just never thought that way. I, I, I always thought that you got to own up to it. You've got to be honest and you've got to tell the truth. And, um, and when I did that, and once I, I said, I accepted this money and this is exactly what I did, did took and, and I'm going to pay the tax and I'm going to do this. And I should have done that earlier. That was my, I own that as well. I, but I did and I paid the penalty, but I don't think that benefited me at the end at all. Um, and when I was sentenced, I was sentenced, uh, they recommended zero to six months and they gave me the full six months. Um, and so I, I got, you know, if you compare my sentence to other people's in the case, I got, I got hit pretty hard, punished pretty severely. And, um, you know, that's a whole nother experience that, that, uh, that really impacted me. That was that was more than challenging. Well, let's talk about that. Uh, what would, like your? How, how does this work? How, how did how, what happened? You're in the in the courtroom. The judge, you know, bangs the gavel and says guilty, yeah. and then they well, come. This is this is this is how it works. Um, once you get arrested and you're you you plead guilty to that, that something, you basically have given your life away to the federal government. You have no, no ability um, to really do anything. Uh, you, it's hard to get a job. It's hard to do, to, uh, hard to, 
to work. So they put you on what was called a pretrial, which meant I'm waiting and they set a, a date of October 30th. So I'm thinking I'm going to go and see a judge on October 30th. But as it turns out, they can change that date whenever they want, however they want, with no reason or explanation. And where was so, that trial? So I have to go to Boston, Boston, Massachusetts, which is a heck of a trip for me. And so I'd already gone up there twice and I'm set to go to Boston. And then I just get an email. Nope. October 30th been pushed to February 4th. Wow. So now I'm in limbo for another four or five months. Then February 4th comes my, my family, some friends, we all have tickets. I'm planning on going there and I get an email three or four days ahead. Nope. We've decided to push it to February 24th. Wow. So you're like on a yo-yo. You're, you're, your emotions are up and down and you have no control. You can't say, well, that's not fair. Right. <laughs> what do you right. mean? And that's all, that, that's almost a year without it's pay too. Almost a year without anything, without, you, you can't do anything. You're just basically, um, you're kind of in, you're not in jail, but you feel like you're in jail. Could you leave your house? Can you, can you, could you travel? At that point I can, I can, I can uh, leave my house. I could travel. I just had to tell someone, um, where I was going. Um, but I'm, you know, I can function, right. but I'm not really free to just, you can function, but you're not functional. You know, I'm not free just to, right. to, to, to go do whatever I want to do. Um, so, so, so let's go to the, the pre-trial you get, finally get to pre-trial. Uh, and, and then like, I think everybody I would wants go to go meet with this guy once a month and I would go and we would talk about what was going on. And, and he was a very nice gentleman and he kept me abreast. But, but the thing about these systems is they don't really communicate. No one really knows what the other arm is doing. It'd be like running a team and, and none of your assistant coaches know anything and anything can happen at any time. So there's no real, structure so you're just kind of sitting there waiting and then finally the, i'm on what's called pre-trial for about a year and i show up to boston on february 24th and i i walk into this room and it was the most horrifying experience of my life i uh you know the the i've been told that the, the recommendation now for the prosecution has been zero to six months. So I'm hopeful that it'll be zero, obviously, or I'm preparing myself for a month or like Felicity Huffman got two weeks or a couple months or, and uh, the judge never looked at me once. He never looked at me. And he asked me to say something and you're told just to say, I'm sorry. You don't really give any story or explanation because that makes you feel sound like you're not remorseful mm -hmm. and you just say you're sorry. And he says to me, quote, uh, you impugn the system and you were going to teach everyone basically not to do this. And I recommend six months. Well, wow. and I, I felt like, uh, I felt like he would have wanted to give me more. I mean, he, he was, but he didn't really know me. You know, it was really a bizarre experience because right. he, he didn't really know me. He didn't know. They don't really dig in to what happened with me. It's, it's, it becomes a, 
what they call a conspiracy where they just kind of throw everybody into one bucket and they treat everyone like they did the same thing. And um, you want to just stand up and shout, no, no, I, I, I this was a one-time thing and these things happen. And you want to kind of give your side of the story, but you really can't. And um, because that could cost you more. And you just say, I'm sorry. And he says six months and I almost collapsed. I literally almost fell out of my chair um were your wife and kids there my wife was there my children was not were not there i had a few friends there for support but i i was devastated and that's an understatement so 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 they they say six months you're in boston do they put you in cuffs right there you have to fly home or and report home i go home and i sign something and i'm to report april the 6th well, everybody knows what happened in March of 2019. Right. COVID. Right. So all of a sudden, COVID becomes everything. And, and it's, it's all the people are talking about. It's, it's, it's obviously a worldwide pandemic. And I have to call on March the 19th to find out where they're putting me. I don't even, I've requested to be close to my home. Hopeful, you know, that it'll be easy for my wife to come see me or my children. And they say, COVID, I call and they say, you're going to Three Rivers, Texas. I thought I was going to go to Bastrop, which was about 45 minutes away. Three Rivers is about two and a half hours away, south of me, down between San Antonio and Corpus Christi and really the middle of nowhere. I'd never even heard of it. I've lived in Texas for over 20 years. I've never heard of three rivers. And I said to the guy at the end, well, is there a COVID protocol? What are you, how are you handling COVID? Well, you, you're going to be quarantined in a cell, a 10 by 10 cell for 14 days. So basically isolation. I'm basically isolated away from anyone and everyone in a, in a medium security prison where they have like, high offenders, uh, you know, it's murderers. It's, it's a, I'm supposed to be in what's called a camp, like a, you know, where you can walk around outside and, and mm-hmm. do your thing. And well, I, I said, I don't know if I can do that. I'm completely claustrophobic. It's one of my issues. I I'm very claustrophobic. And he's like, well, you'll just get arrested. What? I said, well, what can I bring? You can bring a pair of glasses. And you can wear your wedding band. So I show up on April the 6th. I'm scared to death that I'm going into this cell. They're going to shut this door. I don't know if I get out to exercise. Let me, let me interrupt you. Did you, sure. did you drive there by yourself? My wife and my sister-in-law took Jeez. me, my wife's sister. How was that drive? Um, you know, it was at that point, I'm... I'm trying to mentally just prepare myself, you know, I'm trying to just convince myself it's going to be okay as best I can, Mm -hmm. but I'm scared to death because I don't like confined areas. Mm -hmm. And, um, I get there, I meet with a psychologist. He asked me some very bizarre questions. I'm like, no, no, no. And then he got to the point, have you ever thought about killing yourself? And I said, 
I've got to be honest. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, got to be honest. Got to be honest. I got to tell the truth. That's that's what? the only way right. I can be if I'm going to do this the way I told my team to do it. And I, uh, I said, yeah, when this first happened, I'm, I'm honest. It, it, I had, but I only have six months now and I would not do that, but yeah, I'm nervous. Well, I'm going to put you on suicide watch. Once again, telling the truth did yep. not help because now suicide watch, which I had no idea what it meant, meant going into a isolated cell with a concrete bed the air conditioning unit was broken. It was 85 to 90 degrees. They strip you naked and they turn the lights on. So, so wait, wait a first, second, a concrete bed, like, like no mattress? On top of it was a removable one inch foam mattress with a pillow sewn in on the top. But the bed is made of concrete and what that, and they have steel latches on the side of the bed, which if someone acts up, they could strap you down. Oh gosh. And they don't so want like, any material that you could create a, 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 a noose or strangle yeah. yourself. Strangle yourself. So they take all your clothes. They give me a, a I mean, you're, 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 you're naked, naked, naked. I don't even have my underwear on. And I have a, a, a vest of this Velcro. There was a one size fits all that, um, I, you know, would, they would have given you the same one they gave me. You're six, seven, I'm six, one. They would have given it to a guy five, five and it doesn't fit. It's heavy. And so I take it off. So I'm literally standing in this cell completely naked, um, dripping sweat. I mean, absolutely dripping. It's 85, 88 degrees in there. And the lights on and the lights are on. And I pull that mattress and there's a fan and I knock on the door and I said, could you put that fan close to the door? And I laid down and placed my head at the base of the door. And there was about a half an inch crack underneath the door. And I just was trying to breathe the air. And then I would put my feet on the toilet because of the pipes and the water coming through, you know, had it, it was a little cooler in temperature to try to reduce my body temperature. Um, and I was there for 48 straight hours. Well, that's how I started, you know, uh, due to time, we, we have about, uh, 18 minutes. Um, I, I mean, I, th these details are just mind blowing. I feel like I'm reading some novel, um, you know, one, uh, uh, about a year prior, you're one of the top coaches coaching one of the top teams, you know, living in a nice community, kids are doing well, wife has a good job, and a year later you're in prison on suicide watch, butt naked in, a, in, a, in isolation. That's correct. All right. Let's just talk about, in a minute, and won't do it justice, how did you get through those six months? Well, I made a list, and I would write and journal every day, and I would tell myself once again, what would you say to your team? And, and I told myself, this is just time. This is part of your story. Be resilient. Not just be resilient where you get knocked down and get back up, but be resilient where you, when you get knocked down, get back up with more strength and more purpose and more fight and more determination. And I read 
I read about 50 or 60 books. Um, you know, I told you about that man's search for meaning. I read twice. I read Nelson Mandela's long walk to freedom. And I just read a lot of books and I wrote and because of COVID, I was not allowed to go outside much. Um, but when I did, I would exercise and walk. And then the last 42 days I was there, we all got sick. I had COVID uh, tested positive. And so I hadn't seen or stepped outside in six straight weeks. So when I got out, I had to, they put me in this halfway house, which was to help me reacclimate into society, which was another difficult five weeks. Whoa, whoa. so I, you go you go from six months in jail to a halfway house for well, five? four and a half months in jail okay to another five weeks in a halfway house and then i had what's called two weeks of home confinement where i have an ankle brace on me uh, so that's what made the six months so i had the full six months but not all of it in the in the in the prison only four and a half months in the prison all right um you you get home they take the ankle bracelet off right what's going through your mind what's the what's next for michael center well i wanted to sleep because at the halfway house they uh they made me get up at four o'clock in the morning every day um why that's when they serve breakfast 4 a.m 4 a.m so i slept a little bit i was i started calling some people um I I want to work. Well, speaking of calls, Michael, who was the first person, non-family related, that called you, that made it, you remember, that made an impact? Well, through this whole situation, I had four or five people that would call me every day that, you know, during the pre-trial and then when I was out and then after I got home, you know, so for that year of waiting to be sentenced uh, and then even in prison, I would get a, some limited phone calls and I would call them. But I'd have to start with my college coach. He um, called me every day. The impact of coaches, the impact of sport. You thinking about your players when you're being sentenced and telling the truth and your coach in turn is calling you every day to help you get through the darkest time of your life. Every day. And, um, I wouldn't have made it without him. I was a freshman in 1982. And, uh, and I have a couple friends that uh, former coaches that were amazing. And I would like to shout out to my peers people I coached against I received about 500 letters in those four and a half months when I was in prison and many of them were from my my coaching peers 
and they really lifted my spirits and impacted me so much and they helped me so much but um i have a friend whose son was tragically injured in a in a uh golf cart accident we coached and played against each other we speak still to this day pretty much every day and the guy that was the coach at usc for many years uh great coach and great person we speak a lot and you know i just had a a childhood friend the guy showed up three days after this all happened showed up at my house so uh, someone i knew from kin- since i was in kindergarten and so i had a i was really really lucky i had some really great friends and people that that reached out to me and and then my uh you know then my father got sick and then my father passed away. What did he did he pass away while you were in prison or No. 3 months after I got out. So I got to go see him. What did you say to your dad? What did he say to you? I just felt so bad that I put him through this. He worried about me so much. And when I went to see him, you know, I have limitations on my travel and with COVID and everything, it was hard to go right away. And and then I went to go see him and he died five days later. And um, so that was, that's been really hard too. Cause I feel I have a lot of guilt mm. about that, that I, that I put my dad through this and then he died. What part of your faith, you're, you're Jewish. How, how did your faith come into play during this time? Well, one person I, la- I leaned on a lot was my rabbi. And he talked to me about forgiving myself mm-hmm. a lot, mm-hmm. which has been really difficult for me to do. Mm-hmm. I talk about that a great deal. And um, so he's been a, a real strong presence. Um, I wouldn't say that I'm the, the, the most active member of the congregation but I've always identified with being Jewish and I've always identified with something larger than myself, which I think helps people through times like this to feel like there's something bigger than you and more important, uh, you know, a bigger picture, so to speak. But, uh, I have, I, I'm still working on it. Uh, but that's where my faith is tried to, I try to lean on, on that notion that I need to forgive myself. What are your biggest triggers? I talk about in in the book Rebound the triggers, and and they they're they're so hard uh, for me. It's watching the University of North Carolina play, Notre Dame play, the NCAA tournament. What are the big triggers for Michael Center? 
Well, I think, you know, when you coach and you know this, it, it, it becomes such a part of your identity on who you are, rightly or wrongly. And because most people become coaches, you know, when we became coaches, I mean, when I met you, you were a restricted earnings coach. Yeah. You know, making, what, fifteen, sixteen thousand $16,000 a year. That's right. I mean, I was the head women's coach at the University of Kansas making $18,000 a year. That's why you always bought me lunch. That's right. I make. I was making more than you. And so I, uh, I didn't become a coach to make money. You know, I became a coach because I loved being around the players and I loved being around my peers and I loved the competition. And, and, it's, and we've talked, it's like a drug, yep. you know? It's like a drug. It's like you can't find a high and you probably can't find many lows like coaching. That's I right. mean, uh, the thrill of the victory is definitely true. And the agony of defeat became more and more difficult for me. So when I see people get excited in athletics or, um, you know, around here, it's all about Texas. And I see all these you know, the, the coaches come on TV every night, the basketball coaches or the baseball or volleyball. And I, you know, I know still a lot of them and I, and I see the joy in people's faces and the excitement. And, uh, that's a trigger for me. It hurts because I know I have to turn away. Yeah. I can't watch the NCAA basketball tournament. Yeah. I have some anger towards basketball. <laughs> right now yeah um and i don't want to go into all the details but um yeah i grew up in kansas i love basketball and i can't even watch the ncaa basketball tournament so that that's definitely a trigger for me and you're obviously referring to the fact that the player you helped admit into ut was you know uh, working for the basketball program what are you doing to rebound from a devastating setback. How how are you doing it? What's your process? And and you know, are you on track? Well, I'm. I, right now, I've been working and consulting and trying to coach people. And my goal is to try to impact more people than I even did as a collegiate coach. And if I can help them that will hopefully help me. What's your message? What's your, what's your, what's your message to them? Well, you know, we've talked about, um, you know, you, your, your line of turn your mess into your message yeah. is that you, you, you can be resilient. And when, when things are not going your way, when you really are overwhelmed and, and there's so many things in life that can overwhelm you, whether it's a family member that suffered from COVID or you've lost your job or uh, I mean, the list can go on and on. Um, how, how do you handle that? And my way of handling it is I keep telling myself, get back up with more strength and determination than you did before and keep going one day at a time, one step at a time, one moment at a time. And stop worrying about the future and try to not focus on the past. 
And if I cannot focus on the past and not try to always look too far in the future and just do the best that I can each and every day, I can have good days and I can start to string good days together and, and move forward. But I still sometimes look backwards too much Mm -hmm. and I still worry about my future too much. Mm -hmm. And those are the two things that I've got to continue to work on and get better. Today's my birthday, 57 today. And so I'm like, come on, you don't want to spend the rest (laughs) of your life worrying about these things. Enjoy. You have a lot of positives and, and, and be grateful for what I do have. Amen, Michael. I, I, we, I just want to really thank you for sharing. Uh, we learned a lot. Leadership is a learned behavior. You're a leader, whether you are a parent, a coach, a business owner, or a friend. We all lead in some way, shape, or form. Thanks for listening. I welcome any and all feedback. You can reach me on Twitter. My handle is at Darty Matt. <laughs>